0: Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address entitled Love is Life and Life Hath Immortality was given on February 14th of 1984 by Barbara B. Smith, then President of the Relief Society of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today is Valentine's Day, a wonderful holiday devoted to thoughts of love, tucked into the middle of a winter month to warm the heart and revitalize the spirit of men and women. I asked Pat Holland if she ever received a special Valentine from Present Holland that she would share with us. And I found out that she was born just two days after Valentine's, and so he's always called her his February 16th Valentine. She told me that when she was about to turn 40, she had all the attendant feelings of reluctance to let go of the 20s and 30s that most women feel until her sweetheart gave her a Yadro Cinderella and said, You will always be my Cinderella of magical enchantment. Thank you, Pat. You are enchanting to us, too. I'm glad Valentine is right here in the middle of this foggy, snowy February with all of its sweet sentiments, lovely pink and red hearts, and lacy decorated cards. It seems to come when we are most in need of this time to both give and receive some life-renewing, gentle, warming thoughts of love and living. Love. Emily Dickinson wrote, is life, and life hath immortality. Though no one ever really knows exactly what is in the poet's mind, there is a special thought suggested here that is universally recognized as truth. Life without love has a peculiar, haunting quality of resignation and stagnation about it. But love is a force which makes life volatile and the contagion of it sweeps like wildfire from heart to heart. Where love is, life begets life and love begets love, and in all its compounding there is born a quality of immortality. For example, think of the very touching scene in the musical Carnival, in which Lily, the leading lady, is found high up on the diver's platform. She is very discouraged with life. And she feels so alone that she is determined she will jump to her death. The puppeteer sees her up there. He goes behind the puppet show stand and opens the curtain and begins to talk to her through the puppets. He talks her down from the dangerous height, then charms her over to his stand through the puppets, and she talks to them and pours out her lonely heart. No one loves me, she says. And the puppets say, but Lily, I love you. I love you, I love you, and I love you, and at last Paul comes out and says, And I love you, Lily. And into this poignant setting comes the lovely melody, Love makes the world go round. Love makes the world go round and round and round, round and round generative into immortality. Let me share with you one of my favorite and true love stories. I happened into the story very late in its development. One night I went with my husband to a company dinner party. I sat next to an older man who was there with his wife. She had suffered a stroke, and so consequently he would lean over and he would help her cut her meat, and then he would help her eat her food. His manner was very tender and very solicitous, and as he finished the meal, he turned toward me with a sigh. I said to him, You are so good to your wife. His reply, Why shouldn't I be? I love her. Then he told me about how they met, about their courtship and their life together. The first time I saw her, he said, was at a party in Canada. She was giving a reading. She had long golden curls and wore a beautiful white eyelet dress with a pretty blue satin sash. I was so taken by her that I told my mother that that was the woman I was going to marry and she laughingly indulged me. I went on my mission, and when I came home she was engaged to another. I was asked to take a special assignment by the bishop, and when I protested he told me that if I would always put the work of the Lord first, I would find that the Lord would always take care of me. So I made the long trip to Salt Lake, and when I came home she had broken her engagement we started to date, then we were married. His wife rarely accompanied him in public after that dinner. It wasn't long until her condition worsened and she was completely bedridden and virtually unable to speak. He was a general authority and went out on his regular conference assignments to visit and counsel the saints. And it was his practice when he would come home to tell her all about the conference. And one day, as he finished, he teased. If you are not going to speak back to me, I am not going to tell you anything more about my experiences. You must not love me anymore. Great big tears welled up in her eyes, and with great effort she rallied enough strength to form the words, I do love you. It was laborious and extremely slow, but with great effort she got the words out. And He determined he would never again treat her love so lightly, for the love they knew transcended even the crippling hindrance of her physical impairment. At the funeral of this very special woman, Zina Card Brown, every speaker commented on her love, both for her sweetheart, President Hubie Brown, and for others. <clears throat> Elder Marvin J. Ashton declared, Some of us are where we are because of her. And President Marion G. Romney said wherever she was, she was a loving lady. And President N. Eldon Tanner declared that President Brown was so successful because of her love. And then President Kimball said that the love of President and Sister Brown was such that they would soon be together again everlastingly. Her love pulled them toward immortality, a beginning of eternity. A.J. Cronin wrote about another kind of love when he told of the doctor of Lennox as the most unforgettable character he had ever met. He describes him as a simple soul who had no wish to dominate an empire but set out instead to conquer circumstances and himself. Mr. Cronin first knew this doctor as a boy, small, insignificant, and poor, who hung on to a select band of adventurous youths in the town of Leavenford in Scotland by the skin of his teeth, barely being accepted by them. The boy was lame, so lame that he had to wear a boot with a sole six inches thick. And The minister's son called him Dot and Kerry for the way he limped along as he ran. That was shortened to Carry. Kerry was shy with a smiling, continuing cheerfulness. And this the boys mocked as they ran away from him. Carrie's clothes were patched and mended by his mother, the gaunt little widow of a drunken loafer who supported herself and her son by scrubbing out shops. Carrie supplemented the family income by getting up at five o'clock every morning to deliver milk, and this often made him late for school. The headmaster was more sadistic and sympathetic. And he would embarrass the lad unmercifully. And such public embarrassments brought out Carrie's stuttering. His mother had set her heart on her son becoming a minister. And so it was that Carrie, who would have been who would have preferred the out-of-doors and the woods and the wild things, found himself studying for the ministry. He who had an unusual knack of healing was at last. Licensed to cure souls, according to the Kirk of Scotland. But his first public sermon was a disaster. His carefully prepared sermon died as the terrible stammering took hold of him, and his poor mother mercifully was taken by an apoplectic seizure. And after the funeral, Carrie disappeared from Leavenford. Carrie drifted to teaching in a wretched school in a mining district. And next, he surfaced as a student of medicine at the age of 30, and after his medical training, he disappeared again. At length, Mr. Cronin and another of his boyhood friends, now a member of parliament and a professor of anatomy, went to the Highlands for a holiday fishing in the little town of Lennox. Now let me quote from that article of Mr. Cronin's: "The food in our inn was vile." and the landlady was a scrawny shrew. It was something of a satisfaction when, two days after our arrival, she slipped on the taproom floor and damaged her kneecap. Perfunctorily, we two renegades from the healing art offered our assistance, but the dame would have none of us. No one would suit her but her own village doctor of whose skill and notable achievements she drew such an enthusiastic picture that my friend glanced at me and smiled. An hour later, the practitioner arrived, black bag in hand, with all of the quick assurance of a busy man. In no time, he had silenced the patient with a reassuring word and reduced the dislocation with a sure, deft touch. Only then did he turn toward us. It was Carrie, but not the shy, shabby, stammering Carrie of old. He had the quiet, confident air of a man established and secure. In a flash of recognition he greeted us warmly and pressed us to come to his home for supper. Meanwhile, he had the urgent case to attend to. The two men went to his home with an odd expectancy. They found Carrie and his wife. Fresh and pretty as her own countryside. There were children also, two girls and a little boy. Downstairs Carrie joined us with two other guests, but now at his own table he was a man poised and serene, holding his place as host with quiet dignity. His friends, both men of substance, treated him with deference, less from what he said than what was said by others of him we gathered the facts. His practice was wide and scattered. His patients were country folk, canny, silent, hard to know. And yet somehow he had won them. Now, as he went through the village, the women would run to him with babes in arms to consult him in the roadway. and At such times, he never bothered about fees. More than enough came his way. And at New Year's there was always a string of presents on his doorstep—a brace of ducks, a goose, a clutch of new-laid eggs—in handsome settlement for some quite forgotten service. But there were other tales of midnight vigils when, in some humble home, the battle for human life was waged, a child choking with diphtheria. A plowman stricken with pneumonia, a shepherd's wife in painful labor, all to be sustained, comforted, exhorted, brought back haltingly, their hands in his from the shadows. The doctor was a force now, permeating the whole countryside, wise and gentle, blending the best of science and nature, unsparing, undemanding, loving his work. That he had been born to do, conscious of the place that he had won in the affections of the people, a man who had refused defeat and had won through to victory at last. Love was life for Carrie. His literal his love literally meant life to others, and for him a renewed life. There is something in the love that President Brown offered his wife and she gave back to him that is very much like the love the doctor of Lennox offered the people of his Scottish town and the love they gave back to him. Both first gave and then received love. It is this love of which the scriptures speak. It is the eternal life-giving force which permeates the universe and governs the heavens and the earth. It makes the weak strong and lifts people over and through the great boulders of difficulties which fall in our paths from time to time. During the last week of his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ was approached for the third time by the Pharisees in an attempt to confound him. And One of them, a lawyer, asked, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is the same teaching that has been given in each dispensation. Over and over again in every period of time the Lord has repeated this core instruction to his children. Sometimes he says if you do not have love, it doesn't matter what else you know or do. At other times he says if you love me, keep my commandments. But always he stresses that the very heart of the gospel is to love God and man. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. After spending a lifetime studying and writing about men and events, Will Durant, the famous historian, was 92 when he was asked by a reporter what he could say that would distill more than 2,000 years of history into one simple sentence. The message Mr. Durant chose was, Love one another. My final lesson of history is the same as that of Jesus, he said. Durant added with a laugh, You may think that's a lot of lollipop, but just try it. Love is the most practical thing in the world. If you take an attitude of love toward everybody you meet, you'll eventually get along. It is interesting to read the references to love in the scriptures and find that the Lord explains that to love God is simply to do good and kind things to his children. The way the Lord explains how to love one another is actively to do good to all. Could it mean, then, that you seek those new students right here at BYU who hunger and thirst for friendship, a smile, a cheery hello, catching up and walking to class with another student who happens to be going your way? Could there be those who have less than desirable circumstances in their lives as they struggle to obtain their education? Could you reach out to them? Could you take the time to really know each other in your family home evening groups? Know each other individually, their wants and needs and goals? And could you be responsive to them? Could the prison of which Christ speaks be walls of one's own making that would crumble with your kind words or listening ears? Could a thoughtful note be sent to those who make the grounds beautiful? Have these facilities so clean and ready for your meetings—security, food services, or those who are employed by personnel? Could a word about your eagerness to learn be conveyed to your teachers? Perhaps it could mean the difference between routine or royal presentations. If you would give love, you must be appreciative, long-suffering, patient, kind, and humble. And what are the qualities you need if you will receive love—openness, receptivity, vulnerability, humility? Are they practical? Can we really incorporate all of the laws of love given by Jesus in today's world? It is a question often asked. The answer is an individual commitment of faith and love. These commandments are practical in our day-to-day life and behavior, if we will make our actions conform to them. Really, loving people hasn't been tried very often in the world of international relations, and it's rare even in the world of national affairs. But at least one notable experience comes to mind. Gandhi was the man who led India to her independence, and many have seen the film recently made of his life. Remember how he began to realize that turning the other cheek and doing good for hateful deeds would unloose great powers for his people? And then think of the one distraught man who came to him in his suffering. His son had been killed by the Hindus, and in retaliation, he took the life of a small Hindu boy. Heavy-hearted, he sought relief from Gandhi, and Gandhi told him he could find comfort if he would find an orphaned Muslim boy and raise him as his own. Only he was to raise him as a Muslim, not a Hindu. There is a sacrifice in love, a sacrificing that brings immortality. Gandhi suffered a great deal, but ultimately millions of people were granted more freedom. Only the assassin's bullet cut his life short. One wonders what he might have contributed further to sacrifice and vulnerability in the development of that new nation had he lived. One evening, as I conversed with President Harold B. Lee, I said to him, President Lee, you seem different some way tonight. And he smiled and he said, You know what that is, don't you? And I shook my head and I said, I really don't know what it is. And then he shared with me his remarkable experience, saying, After I became the president of the church, I thought a great deal about what the Lord wanted me to do. And one night, while I was sleeping, President McKay came to me in a dream. He pointed his finger at me and looked at me with those piercing eyes of his, as only President McKay could do, and said, If you would love the Lord, you must love and serve his children. Presently, said I awakened with a compelling desire to learn all I could about love, that I might serve the Lord. He said, After I had read everything the scriptures had to say about love, I began to put into practice all that I had gleaned from my study, and that is what you can feel. It is my newfound ability to truly love and serve his children. I watched presently a little more closely that night and noted that not one person who came to that table to shake his hand left without receiving a special word of encouragement or an extra question that indicated the concern of the prophet. No one went away without seeing his smile or hearing his words of love. I have thought of his wonderful example many times in the years that have, as the years have come and gone. He presently is not with us now, but the spirit of that love which he exemplified still lives in my memory. He has helped me to understand what Orson Pratt meant when he said, The children of Zion love in proportion to the heavenly knowledge which they have received. For love keeps pace with knowledge, and as the one increases, so does the other. And when knowledge is perfected, love will be perfected also. We see this also in the life of our beloved prophet Spencer W. Kimball. Love has long been a part of his life, even before he became the president of the Church. A state president in Logan, Utah, kept a guest book. and After he passed away, that book was given to his son. And when the son thumbed through the pages, he was very impressed with the signatures that were there. Most of the general authorities had signed the book. And one entry he saw was Name, Spencer W. Kimball. Date, 1954. Position or title, Apostle. Hobby, I love people. That son thumbed through many more pages, and when he saw an almost identical entry, Ten years later, name Elder Spencer W. Kimball, date 1964, position, apostle, hobby, I love people. We all know President Kimball is a man of love. He thinks of love as a way to overcome even unknown offenses. Such an incident occurred with one of his neighbors, who would go out and talk to President Kimball whenever he saw him in the yard. Until one day, the neighbor's wife said, You mustn't do that. The only time President Kimball is alone is when he's out in the yard, and then you go over and impose yourself upon him. After that, the neighbor stayed in and just watched President Kimball through the window. A few weeks passed before President Kimball rang the doorbell of the neighbor and handed him a casserole. What's this for? the neighbor asked. I don't know, replied President Kimball. I've come to make amends for whatever I've done to offend you. You never come out and talk to me anymore, so I've decided I must have done something wrong. (laughs) It is President Kimball who has so lovingly explained to us that the Lord whispers to our hearts to go and do, and in this way he answers the fervent prayers of others. President Kimball says the Lord has chosen this method of answering prayers because he knows it is the way we will learn most effectively to give love. I feel certain that such was the case cited by President S. Dilworth Young in his memorable address entitled, By Love, Serve One Another. Once, President Young said, when I had the responsibility for an invalid, and it was his wife, his first wife, a good woman announced, I'm coming to your house every Friday night from six until ten, you can count on it. So plan to go at six and find relief for those four hours." How blessed she was to me, said President Young. How good! She blessed both me and the invalid by new cheer, new smiles, and new ideas. Another example came to me in my office by way of a letter from the Medford, Oregon State, which I will quote. <clears throat> I always thought I knew what compassionate service was. I've heard enough about it, and I've been involved in it myself from time to time. And I've even introduced the young girls to it and watched with pleasure how it changed their lives. I never thought it was a big deal. When I was asked to help by taking in meals or tending somebody's children or doing something to help, I often felt very guilty reporting any compassionate service hours because it seemed like I had done so little, and usually I received such happiness from it. Fifteen months ago, I was stricken with a muscular degenerating disease, and I have spent eleven and a half months in the hospital as a patient. Now compassionate service means so much to me. Oh, believe me, it's no little thing, for the little things that people do for others are generally mountainous to the receiver. Compassionate service now means love to me. It is the hug and the kiss. From the tender heart of one who hasn't seen you for a long time and who truly misses you. It's the one who can't control her tears when she sees you in pain. Compassionate service is the love of one who senses your need for companionship so she sits quietly and holds your hand until you fall asleep. It's the one who telephones on her lunch hour just to say, I love you and I'm praying for you. Oh, yes, and it's the one who brings you the bulletin from church each week because she knows how lonesome you are for those brothers and sisters you love. Compassionate service that used to be such a small thing now is one of those biggest things in my day. Having someone with me each day for a period of time often makes the sisters feel guilty if I don't have something for them to do. You see, they don't have any idea how much just being with them means to me. I know they put off their duties—sometimes even urgent ones—just to listen when I need to talk. They come to see me faithfully and bring so much cheerfulness into the room that it is impossible to be discouraged. Their compassionate service literally includes little things like just being alert enough to help me move my legs. When it's an obvious struggle without making me ask for help. That saves me some of my self-respect. It's also using a tissue to dry my tears and then pretending not to even notice the tears. Again, that often helps me save my self-respect. Then on other occasions it comes in the gentle persuasion that lets me cry and get it all out. See what small insignificant things make up compassionate service—small and insignificant only to the one on the giving end. I speak from experience when I say there is nothing small about the love that accompanies compassionate service to the receiver. The compassionate service which is rendered is the evidence of things not seen. It means that we actually believe in the teachings of Jesus. Since its beginning, Relief Society has tried to carry out the sacred charge to do the work that Jesus did. And so the Relief Society story is a story of love with myriad of instances of organized, compassionate service throughout the wards and stakes and branches and districts of the Church. I was recently made aware of two visiting teachers who did all of the grocery shopping for an invalid sister for over a year and then when she needed to have her blood pressure taken daily. They assumed that responsibility willingly, too. In another ward, the Relief Society sisters were organized to supplement the time that the husband was out of the home and unable to care for his wife, who was a native of Thailand, whose English language skills were very limited. She had a disease that attacked every organ of her body. The sisters learned to use the respirator. They bathed her, combed her hair, brushed her teeth cleaned her house, and prepared meals as well. I heard this woman excuse me, cry words of gratitude and love for the patience of those who had served her. But often the love of Relief Society sisters goes beyond fundamental caring for the individual. And it does when young Relief Society sisters, like those of you that are trained here at BYU, become a force for good throughout the world. I have seen former Student Relief Society officers and teachers from here fulfill positions in leadership responsibilities throughout the church. They have been here in the center stakes of Zion and in some faraway corners of the earth. And in these leadership roles, they are carrying out the great traditions of our sisterhood. They are living the motto of Relief Society, Charity never faileth. In reality, they are tending to the needs of those they serve. After the first year of the Relief Society's existence, Eliza R. Snow, the secretary, wrote, We hope the ladies of the society will feel encouraged to renew their exertions, knowing that the blessings of the poor are resting upon them. We feel assured from what has passed under our personal observation that many during the inclemency of the winter were not only relieved but preserved from famishing through their instrumentality. More has been accomplished than our most hopeful anticipations predicted, and through the assistance and blessings of God, what may we not hope for the future?" Close quote. And we are in that future they spoke of now. The work of love in that one little band of women is being carried forth in 10,000 bands of women in 82 countries. Like those sisters before, they are teaching the concepts of love and of charity and urging individuals to give love. They are organizing long-term programs of assistance to each other as need arises, arrives, And giving substance to neighbors, and they are teaching the life-giving concepts. Early in my administration, a Relief Society group from one of the BYU wards came to my office and presented me with a long scroll of names of those who had completed the New Testament adult scripture reading course for that year. The Relief Society unit had determined that not only would they commit themselves to completing the Church reading assignment, they would live it and make it part of their lives. And they wept, as they told me, of one girl who wanted very much to participate, but she was blind. And so each member of the Relief Society determined that they would take turn reading the scriptures to her so that she could participate in that project. Another girl became ill. And so they all helped her keep up with her class assignments so that she could do that and read her scriptures as well. They identified a second list and said that many problems had come up for this group and they weren't able to finish the scripture reading by the date they had set. But they said you can be assured that they will complete it and that they are living what they are learning. There is a great value of combining the efforts of Relief Society members to go beyond theory into life-enriching experiences. The love which makes the world have life is the love which Jesus taught us. It creates life in marriages, life in family, life in neighborhoods, communities, nations, and in the world. We must love the Lord and trust in His word. Love and Trust in Immortality The little things we do for each other bring tenderness and joy into our day-to-day lives. They make life worth living. The loving things we do for those who have despitefully used us bring even more love into our lives. They stop the perpetuation of hate and add to the component of good. The power of love is generative. I think of my young son. I believe he understood this when he was only three. One morning I stepped to our back door to see the children off to school, and our little three-year-old son followed the children to the edge of the yard and watched them as they cut across the grass of a newly moved-in neighbor. Enraged, the neighbor called out, Don't you kids ever cut across my lawn again! Don't you dare step one foot on it! He couldn't see me, but I could surely hear him and so could every other mother that had gone to see her child off to school. And as sweetly as three-year-olds can talk, ours turned to this angry neighbor and said, You can step on our lawn if you want to. (laughs) The next day that neighbor came out with a big smile and a darling teddy bear, and he handed it to our little son. And There was never again a problem over that lawn. Receive love, let others step on our lawn, open ourselves to receive another. Perhaps you will remember the story of Corrie Ten Boom, a fifty-year-old spinster who became a militant heroine of the anti-Nazi underground during World War II. The book is called The Hiding Place, and it describes an extraordinary adventure in Christian courage. And certainly I found it to be just that. I'd like to share with you just two examples of how love worked in her life to help her do good when she had been extremely ill-used. The first time was when she was a young woman in Holland. She was very much in love and had thought her love was returned. But then one day the young man came to her door with another young woman. He wanted to introduce Corey to his fiancée. The family rallied around to help her face this crisis. And after the young couple left, Corey fled to her bedroom, where she lay sobbing. And then she writes, quote, "Later, I heard Father's footsteps coming up, and for a moment, I was a little girl again, wanting him to tuck the blankets tight. But this was a hurt that no blanket could shut out. And suddenly, I was afraid of what Father would say. And of course, he did not say the false idle words. Corey, he began instead." Do you know what hurts so very much? It's love. Love is the strongest force in the world, and when it is blocked, that means pain. There are two things we can do when this happens. We can kill the love so that it stops hurting, but then, of course, a part of us dies too. Or Corey, we can ask God to open up another route for that love to travel. Whenever we cannot love in the old, human way, Corey. God can give us the perfect way. Later, after the terrifying experiences of wartime Nazi concentration camp, Cory found herself face to face with one of the SS guards. It was at a church service in Munich, and he was the man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of their actual jailers that she had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and Betsy, her sister, whose face was pain pain blanched. That guard came up to her and said, as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, how grateful I am for your message, to think that you say, He has washed my sins away and he thrust his hand out to shake hers. And she said, And I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumenthal the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the, the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask more? Jesus, I prayed, forgive me. And help me to forgive him. Corey said, I tried to smile and I struggled to raise my hand, but I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or of charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so Corey said, I discovered that it is not on our own forgiveness any more than on our own goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. I want to tell you that I have known great love in my life, in my marriage, with my children, and as the president of the Relief Society, and as I grew up in a loving family who looked forward to the occasional visit of one of my mother's older cousins whom we called Aunt Lillian. She had been a teacher in the public school system for more than thirty years, and we were always entranced as we would listen to her tell us of the problems she had with a disruptive student and of those in the school system who had made a great impact on her life for good as she lived alone. One day she invited me to go to her apartment to help her entertain the young daughter of a schoolteacher friend. Everything was so meticulously prepared for us—the food she served and all of her surroundings. Her thoughtful ways evidenced a lifestyle of noble living. I was deeply impressed with the love she showed both of us that day, and it continued on for me year after year. When she was seventy years old, she bought herself a brand-new car, the very first one. It was a blue Plymouth, and she took driving lessons. And When she got her license, she decided to drive to California to visit her sister, and she invited me to go along to keep her company. I was about twelve years old and I was so excited because I would only been to Wyoming before and I felt that if I could go to California I would become a world traveler. However, because she was such an inexperienced driver, I saw very little other than the road and the other cars that were coming at us most of the time. I was so frightened. But we did arrive safely, and we enjoyed our time with the family members that I hadn't met before. And She always gave so much of herself to make me happy. This continued on for me through my growing years and even when I married until Doug and I decided that we would name our second daughter after her. Her love was showered upon me and then upon all of my children. At Christmas time she would bring them lovely gifts. She knew the value of good books and beautiful flowers and the people, and she often tended my children and she gave them a love for the th- these things. All through these years I was a recipient of her love. And the day came when I was able to have her with us and to do good for her and ease some of her lonely hours. I received so much more love and enrichment to my life because of her. And That, you see, is what love is—is the investure, the immersing of ourselves in the lives of others, and watching that change us and our surroundings. Because of her, I know that love is the life-giving force which renews the spirit of men and women and brings a new life to the world—a life that brings a longing for immortality. She helped me to understand the French scientist, Descartes, who observed, Someday, after we have mastered the winds, the waves, the tides, and gravity, we will harness for God the energies of love. And then, for the second time in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. How wondrous! On this day of love, may each one of us, Think of love as the great and powerful force that it is. May we take his teachings about love very literally and work at mastering the skill of giving and receiving love. Love is the force by which we can renew the world. Love is life, and life hath immortality. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ, whose love is wondrous. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer.